that you have revealed everything we need to know about you and about ourselves and about how to be made right with you, that you've revealed that in your word. Father, we ask this morning that you would make this passage plain to us, that we would be able to understand its, its original meaning and also the, the spiritual meaning that you intend for our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes when parents send their children to school for the first time, it can be eye-opening. There was a kindergartner named Thomas who went to school for the first time and he was kicking other students on the playground. And so the teacher called this this student's parent, uh, hoping to enlist their help to, to decrease that behavior. And so she called Thomas's mother and she told her what was happening. And Thomas's mother's response was, Thomas wouldn't do that. And the teacher said, well, Thomas, students are reporting it and they're coming to me and they're showing me their bruised legs. And the mother said, so you didn't actually see him do it. The teacher had to admit, no, I haven't. She said, well, Thomas wouldn't do that. A couple of days later, he was doing it again, and this time the teacher did see it, and so she called Thomas's mother, and her response was, once again was, Thomas wouldn't do that. And she said, but I saw him do it. She said, well, maybe you were mistaken. Maybe he was just playing. Or, or maybe he was kicking a rock on the ground, and he accidentally hit them. And so the, the teacher, thinking quick on her feet, invited Thomas's mother to observe him. And she said, why don't you show up tomorrow? Are you free at around 12.20 for noon recess? Why don't you come by? We'll, we'll watch him together. And so Thomas's mom came and they were on the playground. And at first Thomas was a little guarded, but after about five minutes, he began to play freely. And then of course, wouldn't you know it, 10 feet in front of them, there were two other children. And Thomas walked up, kicked each one in the leg and ran off. And his mother was standing there with her mouth open in shock. And the teacher knew it was unprofessional, but she said it anyway. She said, now do you believe me? And of course, his mother had to believe her. It happened right in front of her. It was undeniable. She couldn't explain it away. She couldn't make excuses for Thomas. There it was. It happened. When something's undeniable, that means that it is beyond dispute. It can't be explained away. And in John chapter 6, we see another sign performed by Jesus. This is the feeding of the 5,000. And in this account, John piles up so many details, so, so many specifics, one on top of the other, that it is impossible to deny the miraculous nature of this sign and what the spiritual meaning of this sign is. It's undeniable. Only Christ can create and give life, and only Christ can provide spiritually for his people in all times and in all places. So the truth contained in this passage is still as fresh today as it was then. And this passage contains one of those anchor truths that we need as believers and followers of Christ, we need this. We need to be reminded of it as we live out our Christian life. So let's look at this passage, the first 15 verses of John chapter 6. 
After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough to feed each of them to to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Our passage begins with the phrase, After this, this is a time marker. Some time has taken place since Jesus healed the man at the pool who had been paralyzed for 38 years. And it must have been quite some time. Note that in chapter 2, we read Jesus cleansing the temple during Passover. And then here in our passage, down in verse 4, we're told that the Passover was at hand again. So this shows us that just how selective John was about recording what events and in what things Jesus said and including them in his gospel. He does not include everything. This means that an entire year has gone by between the end of chapter 3 and the the end of chapter 5. And and we're only given what's included in here. That means that he left out a lot. A lot of what Jesus did. A lot of what Jesus said. We need to understand when it comes to the life and ministry of Jesus, we are not seeing everything there is to see. We're seeing a couple of thumbnails, not not the whole video here. He's being selective. It said that Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called Sea of Tiberias. So the other side is is away from the, the Jewish side. If you remember your geography, you've got the Sea of Galilee and then the Jordan River. And then on the, on the west side is uh, Judea and Samaria and Galilee. But on the east side is just Gentile territory. That's not the side. So they were going to that side, the other side, away from the the Jewish side. And we also know that because later in verse 17 of the same chapter, it says that they started back towards Capernaum, which is back over on the Jewish side. So they're on the non-Jewish side. And it says a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. A large crowd. Verse 10 tells us there were 5,000 men, which tells us that there were really a lot more than that. That's, that's not including 
the women and the children. So conservative estimates, very conservative estimates, double the amount to 10,000. More realistic estimates place it at about 15 to 20,000. If you have an ESV study Bible and you look down in the notes, that places it at 20,000. That's their, their best reckoning. But we're told that they were not following him because they put their faith in him as the Son of God. They were not following him because they had experienced spiritual new birth and had believed in Jesus. No, it says because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. They followed out of curiosity. They followed because they wanted to see what he would do next. Jesus was interesting. Jesus was intriguing. Jesus was uh, entertaining. Thought-provoking. He was new and different. So John's point is that, yes, there was a large crowd following him, but that wasn't a crowd consisting of a bunch of born-again disciples of, of Jesus Christ. This was a public crowd filled with spectators who wanted to be as close as possible to Jesus so that they could see, be there and see when he, did his, when he performed his, his next big play on the field. That's who was following him. Verses 3 and 4 give us some details about the place and the time of the sign. It said Jesus went up on the mountain. Now when the Bible talks about mountains and we're in the Sea of Galilee region, he's not talking about uh, these Rocky Mountain, kind of 14,000 snow-capped peaks. They, they were what we would call really large hills. I mean, they were elevated. You, you went up quite a bit of elevation, but this is not uh, a mountain of granite up in the clouds. These were... These were large hills. And earlier, uh, like I mentioned, it tells us that the Passover was at hand. So this detail may have been included because that would explain why we have such a large crowd out in the middle of nowhere. They're, they're in the wilderness. They're, they're, they're in a, a, he calls it a desolate place in the parallels. So they would be on their way from the surrounding regions, from the, the dispersed Jewish peoples all over, they would be making their way to Jerusalem for the Passover. That would explain why we've got such a large crowd. Verse 5, lifting up his eyes, he saw the large crowd, and he said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So, again, from the parallel accounts, this is the only, by the way, this is the only sign that is recorded in all four Gospels. This, this is the big one. This is the one with the most witnesses. This is the most public sign he ever, he ever performed. This is it. And, and the parallel accounts tell us that uh, he had been teaching them, he'd been healing them, he'd had compassion on them, and he wanted to give them something to eat because it says they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so here's this, this shepherd, this great shepherd, that wants to feed the crowd. But Jesus' disciples apparently hadn't yet developed that shepherd's heart because they told him to send them away. Uh, Mark 6, 35 and 36 says, And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to, get, to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So the disciples looked at the crowd and said, um, Jesus, now would be a good time 
to, to, to get rid of these people. Now, now would be a good time to send them away. Can we give the order to disperse now? Okay? Jesus asked Philip, who was originally from the area, if there was a good place where they could buy some bread. And then we have this note about Jesus' question being a test. So even as he asked Philip this, he knew what he was going to do. He was testing him. Does Jesus test his disciples? Yes, Jesus tests his disciples. This is a reminder that that Jesus' signs and miracles, his works that he was performing, were not random events. This was not Jesus looking at the crowd and deciding, all of a sudden, I guess I need to perform a miracle here because we need a bunch of food uh, suddenly. No. Uh, Last week we read in 536 that his miracles and his works and his signs were called the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. So this was not a surprise. This was not a last-minute effort. These works were premeditated. They were planned out. They were predetermined. So fully aware of what he's about to do, he still asks Philip uh, where we can get some bread. He's testing him. Jesus tests his disciples. Jesus tests us. Jesus still tests us today. Will we believe in him? Will we look to him for deliverance? Will we depend upon him? Will we, will we even think about praying to him and, and checking with him to see what, what it is he wants us to do? Will, he, will we trust in him? Will we trust in his provision? Will we trust in his power? So Jesus tests us. Jesus tests his disciples all the time. And this is a test for Philip, and he seemed to have failed this one. He seemed to have failed. Look at, the, look at verse 7. 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough to, for each of them to get a little. A denarii was a, a day's wage for a common laborer, so this was well over half a year's earnings for a common laborer. And in the first century, that would have bought a lot of bread. A lot of bread. But I want us to catch the tone that's coming across in, in Philip's words, he, he answered Jesus like he's trying to talk some sense into him. He, he answered Jesus as if Jesus isn't grasping the, the situation or the enormity of, of the challenge that lies before him. I mean, if we paraphrase it, he would be something like this. Even if we could buy such an, an outrageous amount of bread from a vendor or a baker, and we can't, even if we were to buy all that bread, there still wouldn't be enough for people to even get a little bit of a scrap. That was his answer. That's like borderline a rebuke to Jesus. I had a teacher in junior high who would never tell a student that they were wrong. They just wouldn't do it. So when a student raised their hand and they gave a wrong answer and the teacher was looking at the student, when they gave the wrong answer, the teacher would break eye contact and start scanning the room, and they would say, anyone else? Anyone else? She didn't have to tell you you were wrong. As soon as she broke eye contact and started asking around, you knew you had given the wrong answer. This this seems to be like one of those anyone else moments. Uh, Notice that after this outburst from Philip, Jesus doesn't answer him. He doesn't rebuke him. 
He doesn't tell him that he gave a wrong answer. It just seems like he's waiting around for someone else to raise their hand. And someone does. Look, Andrew speaks up. Uh, He says, okay, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? This answer isn't really much better than Philip's, is it? It still has that same kind of hopelessness. Um, This isn't going to work. There's no way we can feed the multitude. But this is one of those details that John includes to make sure we know how much little food there was. This is one of those details that he's piling up to make sure that the reader understands that this is an undeniable, miraculous sign and and what it points to. He's talking about the exact number of uh, an amount of food. This wasn't a a mule-drawn cart full of bread. This was a small amount carried by a child. And, And this is here to show us that it was Undeniable. This isn't a case. This isn't a case of miscounting. This isn't a case of of uh, overestimating how much was in a container that they could only see the top of. And well, I guess there's only five, but really there's this deep, deep container. No, no. He gets specific. Five loaves of bread, two fish. That's in there to show us the undeniable nature of this sign. Jesus says, "Have the people sit down." Now there was much grass in the place and the men sat down about 5,000 number. Once again, we have this detail about the number of people and the, the fact that they're sitting to show us the undeniable nature of the sign. 5,000 men plus the women and children, we said around 20,000 would be an accurate estimate. This is so that we know that no matter how much sharing they did, no matter how much uh, stretching it out and, and, and breaking and breaking and breaking a part of the bread, there's no way that they could have fed this amount of people. Um, to put it in perspective, a United States aircraft carrier has a crew of about 5,000 people. It's been called a floating city. So imagine if an aircraft, aircraft carrier came in, made port, and the entire crew disembarked. Sailor after sailor after sailor. Five and then another one came in and their crew disembarked and another one and, and if maybe even a fourth that many people that's how many people Jesus is going to feed I, I think we've become desensitized we read the feeding of the 5,000 it's really 20,000 and I think we need to grasp the, the size of people that, that's like feeding every citizen of uh, Effingham that's like uh, everybody in Palos Heights. If it's 20,000, that means there, there's enough food there to feed every single man, woman, and child in Frankfurt. That's, that's the kind of scope and size of this miracle that we're talking about. If every man got a, a half of a loaf of bread and a fish, and that would be considered a reasonable portion for a meal, then this really should have been only able to feed maybe 10 to 15 people. Not Frankfurt. And he had them sit in orderly groups. This is another detail. If they sat in one big mass group, then it would be maybe someone could could make the case that the disciples circled around and and they gave bread to everyone on the perimeter, but everybody in the middle, you know, the five or 10,000 in the middle of this large group, well, they didn't get anybody, but it seemed like we fed them all. No. They sat down in 50s and 100s. 
That way I can make eye contact with every single person in that group. We can pass the bread around to make sure everybody gets some. Somebody could even raise their hand and say, I didn't get any if they were passed. This is to show us the undeniable nature of this sign. Jesus took the loaves. When he had given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. So he gave thanks before eating it. This would have been expected. This is not the Lord's Supper, though. Sometimes you see this, oh, he's breaking bread. That must be the Lord's Supper. No, it's not the Lord's Supper. He's not, <laughs> the Lord's Supper has not been instituted yet. Okay, that will come later. This is not the Lord's Supper. This is a sign. And some people have, have speculated, well, when did the miracle actually take place? Was it when he was praying over the bread? When it was his disciples distributing it? I mean, when, when did it happen? And we're not told but if you pressed me, I would probably say it happened when it was in Jesus' hands, when he was breaking the bread. When you look at the gospel accounts, you see healing occur at Jesus' word, but you also see it at Jesus' touch. You remember the, wood, uh, the woman with the, with the discharge of blood for 12 years? It was at his touch. He touched him, and he said, I perceive that power went out from me. Who touched me? It was at his touch. Uh, later on, Jesus uh, raised a girl from the dead, and it says, as he took her hand, she arose. So what we've got here, and Matthew tells us in Matthew 14, then he broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples, and his disciples gave them to the crowds. So that's, that's kind of what we can picture is happening, is Jesus is breaking these loaves, and as they are in his hands breaking them, they are, they are becoming uh, more. He, he is creating bread out of, out of nothing. And he just keeps repeating that process. He keeps handing them out to his disciples until 20,000 people have been fed. And it was all over, after everybody has eaten, it says, as much as they wanted, as much as they wanted. Nobody turned to their friend and said, yeah, I think I got a piece, but I'm still kind of hungry. We're going to have to stop for some food after we leave here. I just didn't get enough. No, as much as they wanted. And, on top of that, there was food left over. Verse 12, when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments. Leftovers? After feeding 20,000 people? This is just God showing off, isn't it? Leftovers? Everybody had enough, they pushed away from the table, said, oh, I'm full, and then there was food left over. This is a detail that tells us the undeniable nature of this sign, the enormity of it, the miraculous nature of it, the authenticity of it. I mean, after these details, it would be impossible for someone to, to provide some kind of naturalistic explanation, although people have tried. Yeah, liberal scholarship has tried to explain this away. You can't. There's too many details here. It's undeniable. In fact, you know it's a miracle when the amount that you have left over is more than the amount you started with after feeding 20,000 people. They followed his command. They gathered up the, the leftovers. And here's the reaction. Twofold. A declaration of who they thought he was and a desire to make him king. So, number one, a declaration of who they thought he was. It says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, 
They said, this is indeed or truly or surely the prophet who is to come into the world. And we've talked about this before. And John, if you were here with us when we looked at John chapter 1, that's when the delegation from Jerusalem uh, was sent out to confirm the identity of John the Baptist. And they asked him, are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Or are you the prophet? And they were talking about the prophet foretold in Deuteronomy 18, 18. It says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. So God had told them, be on the lookout for another prophet like Moses. And and here we have a man who spoke the words of God and who gave people bread in the wilderness. Well, Moses spoke the words of God and he gave the people bread in the wilderness, the manna. So, so they're seeing that connection and they're saying, oh, I guess this is the guy. And they were right. Jesus is the prophet of Deuteronomy 18, 18. It's just that they failed to appreciate and understand the fullness of what the prophet means and who he was. Secondly, a desire to make him king. It says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. We can see how they got there. They're thinking, okay, this is the prophet from Deuteronomy 18. Um, Moses, like this prophet, delivered us from our political enemies, from our political oppressors. He delivered us from Pharaoh and out of Egypt. So this guy must be here to deliver us from the Romans. This must be here. He must be the king that we've been waiting for so we can finally be set back up on our own two feet, be be a sovereign nation, another force to be reckoned with in the ancient Near East. Finally, let's grab this guy, anoint him king, and get the ball rolling. That was their thought pattern. But they were mistaken. Just like they were mistaken about his identity as the prophet, they were mistaken about his identity being the king. He was both. He was the prophet. He is the king. But not like they wanted. They they wanted to see a deliverer from Rome. But he was there to deliver them from sin. Jesus didn't come to take up the sword. Jesus came to take up the cross. And there's a big difference. So knowing this, he withdrew. He wasn't going to let that party get started. Not happening. Undeniable. Let's summarize this, this passage. In this passage, John shows us another sign by Jesus, the feeding of the multitude. And John includes multiple details to ensure the reader does not miss the undeniable, miraculous nature and power of this sign in which Jesus reveals himself as the one who is the divine creator and giver of life, who is able to make full provision for his people's spiritual needs. The crowd that witnessed this sign responded by calling him the prophet who was to come and a desire to make him king, yet their understanding of who Jesus was and why he came remained flawed. That's what John 6, 1 through 15 is about. And we're reminded that as these signs are presented selectively by John in this gospel, we are supposed to look beyond the physical and beyond the material. We're not supposed to stop at food. We don't read this and say, wow, bread. We're supposed to look beyond that. 
we're supposed to look to the spiritual meaning. So th this sign really is setting the stage for Jesus' extended discourse on being the bread of life. That's what the second half of chapter 6 is about. So this is a touchstone for Jesus proclaiming himself to be the bread of life. We need to acknowledge that. We need to see that. Yes. But as a standalone passage, this passage shows us, the spiritual side shows us that Jesus is the creator and giver of life and that he is able to provide for his people's spiritual needs at all times and in all places. That's the message for us. So let's look at both of those. Number one, Jesus is the creator and giver of life. Jesus created bread out of nothing. Ex nihilo. There, there was nothing there, and then after Jesus performed the sign, there was bread. Out of thin air. Jesus created Something came into existence that was not into existence before Jesus' touch and Jesus' power. Likewise, when Jesus calls people to himself, he brings something to him, into existence that was not there before. He, he takes someone who is a, a sinful, rebellious person who, who, who has no interest in following God and in, in its place he creates a forgiven, justified person who loves God and wants to follow him. That's the work of Christ. And we can no sooner create a clean heart in ourselves than we can make a loaf of bread out of thin air. Uh, Psalm 51.10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. It doesn't say, uh, Be patient with me, God, while I create my own clean heart. No, we can't do that. Only God does that. And he does not require any help from us. God does not require our help in creating spiritual life in us any more than Jesus required the help of the loaf of bread before he multiplied it. It just doesn't work that way. This, this creating of spiritual life by God is called monergism. It, it means one work. God alone creates spiritual life. He alone gives us new birth. And it stands opposed to synergism, which means working together. That's, that's the belief that is, that is held by some still who believe that God works together with man, with man's will, with man's desire, with man's effort to create new spiritual life. Life, excuse me. But it's, it's God alone. Without our help. James 1.18, of his own will, he brought us forth. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And John 1.13 We who are, were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's God's work. Alone. Monergism. Trying to make our new spiritual birth something we do is like saying the bread multiplied itself. The bread just made itself multiply. Or that Jesus needed the bread's help to do the sign. So the challenge question from this passage is this. Have you been born again? Have you been brought to spiritual life by the Lord Jesus Christ? Has he created a clean heart 
in you. Has God convinced you of your sin and your need for a Savior? Or to put it another way, if if you're not convinced that you need forgiveness, if you're not convinced that you need a Savior, you have not been born again. If, If you think you are just fine spiritually and you don't see what the big deal is about Jesus, then you've not been born again. If you think you're a good person and that based on you trying to live your life as good as you can, that God will accept you, then you have not been born again. That's not from God. Only God can create and give new spiritual life. The only thing that saves us is faith in Christ. It's what He has done to save us. We have about as much chance of entering heaven without Christ as the bread had of multiplying itself without Christ. Now the good news is is that God is in the business of creating new spiritual life. The good news is, is that there is a way to be made new before God, to be made right with Him, to have a clean heart. And that way is Jesus. That way is turning to Jesus in faith, putting your trust in Him, and by the power of Christ we are made new. We need a Savior. I need a Savior. You need a Savior. Uh, We're all familiar with the the progress bar that's become a part of our life, a digital progress bar when we're uploading something or when we're downloading something or when something's being worked on by the computer. We see this progress bar and it just kind of moves along and it kind of inches forward. Sometimes it moves nice and slow and steady. Sometimes it jumps. But it's such a a good feeling when we see that progress bar reach the end, isn't it? But it's a very frustrating feeling when the progress bar stops and it doesn't go any further. And we wait and we wait. And sometimes it never moves any, any further. It just stops. That's extremely frustrating. When we think of being made right with God, if we want to use the illustration of a progress bar, we need Jesus' righteousness and his blood. We need both. The blood gets the progress bar halfway. Okay? The blood takes care of the penalty that we uh, have incurred because of our sin. We are sinful. You're sinful. I'm sinful. Jesus' blood pays for our sin. God accepts the payment of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf vicariously. Jesus went to the cross not to pay for his own sin. He didn't have any. He went to the cross to pay for the sin of his people. That blood of Christ gets the progress bar halfway. But guess what? We're not done there. We need the righteousness of Christ. We need the perfect moral perfection so that we can be declared righteous by God. He's not going to declare us righteous on our own. We need the righteousness of Christ. That's his perfect life. We need that also in order to get the progress bar to 100% so that we are welcomed into the kingdom of God, so that we become one of his. If you're here and you're trying to make yourself right with God through your own moral goodness, where are you on that progress bar? You're not even halfway. You've got a penalty which you're, if you, Christ doesn't pay the penalty, then you are hellbound. You're going to pay for it yourself. And then also, you don't have the perfect righteousness. You're nowhere on the progress bar. Progress bar hasn't even started. 
It's in Christ. Christ is the only one that gets us right with God. We need both his righteousness and his blood. If you've never given your life to Christ, if you don't have spiritual rest, if you don't have peace with God, if you don't know with 100% certainty that you are right with God and will be with him forever, surrender. Surrender everything you're trying to hold on to. Surrender and repent of your own good works. Repent of your pride. Repent of whatever you're holding out, whatever it is about Christ and his word and, and, and the truth of God, whatever it is that you're just not grabbing onto and you have reservations about, surrender it, grab hold of Christ, and never let go. So number one, Jesus is the only one that, that provides spiritual life. Number two, he is the only one who provides for his people's spiritual needs at all times and in all places. Jesus was able to provide for these people despite the circumstances. They were in the middle of nowhere. It says a desolate place. They were not near a grocery store or a baker. They were in the middle of the countryside. They were in the, they were in the middle of, of nowhere. And the amount of people made it seem like an impossible task. I mean, you read the text, you, you heard it. Even the disciples were not on board with this. Even the disciples were saying, I don't know, Jesus. I think it's time to send them away. We can't handle this one. And the implication was, you can't handle this one. Philip, with his outburst, it's not happening. Come to your senses, Master. And then Andrew, the, the kind of hopelessness. Do the math. There's enough food here. It's not going to work out. At the time, it seemed impossible. The people were in need. It seemed like an impossible need. And what happened? Jesus met their need in full. All they wanted, it says. In full. Jesus met their need. He didn't send them away as recommended by his disciples. He met their need in a way that only Christ could do. Now remember, we're supposed to not stop at the physical. We can't stop at bread. We're supposed to look beyond that. If we stop at bread, we've missed what he's teaching us. So what he's teaching us spiritually is this. If you are in Christ, Jesus will never send you away. If you are in Christ, Jesus will always provide for your spiritual needs in all times, in all places, in all circumstances. It doesn't matter if it looks impossible. He will be there for you. He will provide. We can't make this about bread. Uh, there have been some that have tried. There, there have been some that have, that have tried to make this sign about uh, Jesus providing for us uh, physically, materially, earthly, things like money, um, our own health, uh, protection, happiness. Now, those are good things. And Jesus does love us, and he does give us those things. But sometimes the best thing for us and, and the greatest spiritual need that we have is an absence of those things. Sometimes he removes our health. Sometimes he takes away our financial stability or security because he's trying to teach us to depend upon him or to, to purge us of our independence or our pride. 
Sometimes we just need to be disciplined. Sometimes we need to go through a dark valley. And he does this because he loves us and he's preparing us. He's having us go through something now so that we'll be better prepared later. We are servants of the Most High and he loves us enough to build into us and to spend time preparing us. If we're going to make a unique and significant contribution to the kingdom of God, don't you think that the one who loves us will prepare us for that? When we look back at scripture and we look at all those those leaders and all the people that God has used in the past, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Joseph, Moses, the Apostle Paul, did they not go through a period of refining? Did they not pass through the fire? Yeah. Yes, they did. So this sign is not primarily about physical material needs. It's not just about bread. It's about his commitment to his people. This, is, this sign points to one of the greatest spiritual truths that we have in Scripture. This is that anchor truth that we need as we make our way through our Christian life. When Jesus calls us to himself, he promises, I will not leave you. I will be there. I will not abandon you. I will not drop you. I will not walk away from you. I give you my promised presence and provision for life, for eternity. I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be for you. I will never forsake you. And I will never leave you. This, pros- this promise is from God. It is undeniable. Not only does he show it to us in this sign, but he shows us explicitly in Scripture. Look at Joshua 1.5, where it says, No man, this is the Lord speaking to Joshua, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Now in that context, Joshua, this is right before the conquest of the land. Joshua is going to go into the land. And it's not just... um, internal battles that he was going to be fighting. He was going to be face-to-face, hand-to-hand combat, physical, violent, bloody, to-the-death combat with, with very large opponents carrying weapons standing right in front of him who wanted to kill him. That's the, prom- the context in which this promise was made. What an assurance. What an assurance. How many men would, would Joshua face in battle? A lot. And God says... None of them are going to be able to stand before you all the days of your life. I am with you. This promise is for you and me. And before you accuse me of lifting it out of context, I'm not going to do that. The Bible takes this verse and applies it to us, to the church. This is Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. For he has said, quote, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we... New Testament church believers can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. The Bible tells us to take that promise and apply it to ourselves. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I'm not going to leave you in the wilderness. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to turn you away hungry. 
in all times and in all places, illness, injury, life-changing diagnosis, at work, all kinds of special challenges at work, pressure, politics, or just the repetitive monotony of it, maybe sometimes. In your marriage, when things aren't working out, even after you feel like you've tried everything, and even when you don't feel like trying anymore. God promises to be with us and for us in our personal sin struggles. I am with you. I am for you. Discouragement, despair, unmet goals, wherever you are, in whatever circumstances, Jesus is with you. Jesus is for you. His promised presence, his promised provision. We need to hear this. You need to hear this. I need to hear this. I need to hear this more than once. This is an anchor truth that God wants us to grab hold of and hang on to. There's one more detail. I'm going to close with one more detail about the text that needs to be addressed. John 6.10, Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Does that seem odd to you? On, on first reading, I, we get some of that. We understand why we get the detail about the number. We talked about that and about sitting down. That, that makes sense to, not, to make sure that the sign isn't deniable about the crowd being in small groups and, and the sheer number. We get that, but what about this part? Now there was much grass in the place. Does that seem a little out of place? Does that seem odd? How does that help us get the spiritual meaning out of this passage? There was much grass. Well, if God wants us to see this, this anchor truth in the sign, the truth that he will never leave us and forsake us, and I'm convinced he does want us to see this in the sign. If part of the reason of this sign of feeding the multitude is to show that Jesus will fully and always provide for his people's needs, then this detail about the grass is important. When Jesus fed the multitude, it said they ate until they were full. They did not lack. They ate until they didn't want any more. Psalm 23 begins with this statement, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The meaning of that Hebrew word translated by the ESV as, as want could be also translated as, I shall not be in want or I shall not lack, or I shall not be in need. NIV says, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. NASB says, I will not be in need. And then the very next verse in Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. So there's John 6.10 again. Jesus says, have the people sit down. That's a command. He's making them. Now there's much grass in the place. John is including the detail about the grass, and that's not misplaced at all. That, that's not an odd detail that's just randomly stuck in there. He is showing us that Jesus is the Lord and the great shepherd of Psalm 23. He's telling us, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you'll never lack again. Never. 
Jesus will not turn his back on his sheep. He will never abandon you or leave you to fend for yourself. And that's an undeniable promise from God. And it is for each one of us who are in Christ. He will not leave us in this life or when this life is over. When, when we're done here, when we've seen our last summer and we've taken our last breath, Jesus will be there for you and he will provide safe passage into the presence of the Father. And he will continue to be with you and provide for you forever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, our great shepherd, the one who will never leave us or forsake us. Father, we thank you that he provides fully for his sheep. We trust in you. Thank you for this anchor promise and for your full provision. Father, we pray that we would walk before you in this truth, that we would accept this and and lean on it and come back to it as often as needed so we can continue serving our King. In Jesus' name, amen.